Hi! Welcome to Church in the Valley, Alhambra, everyone. It's a great time to be here. Uh, we're going to start our service, so if you guys want to mosey on over and find your seats. Um, I've been in America too long if I use the word mosey. Uh, but yeah, you guys can find lyric sheets and, uh, uh, over there on the table. Uh, or on screens as normal. And you can find the speaker notes and your connection cards, everything else you need on the service at civalhambra.com forward slash Sunday if you prefer to use uh, digital instead of physical copies. But we're super glad you guys are here. Uh, after, you know, post-Thanksgiving comas and post-Thanksgiving naps, glad that you guys are here to worship. And now we are fully in the Christmas season. I am no longer judged for singing Christmas music. <laughs> Um, and it's great. So we're going to sing some Christmas songs because that is really the reason of this, the reason for this season, as it says in Isaiah 9, 2, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a light, and on those who uh, walked in the shadow of death, a light has shined. And so we're going to sing songs celebrating the fact that we have a God who came down to earth and who has made himself known to us. So would you stand with us as we sing about Jesus is here? The one true King has come, the Father's only Son. It came down for all of us to conquer the world with love. The promise turned to flesh, the prophet's words descend. A Savior has come to earth with freedom for all the world. Let heaven and nature sing praise to the newborn King. Christmas is all about the Father's love for us. Join with the angels on high, sing with the saints in the choir. Christmas is all about the Father's love for us. A manger made a throne to welcome heaven's son. The universe roars with praise for Jesus is born this day. Let heaven and nature sing praise to the newborn King. Christmas is all about the Father's love for us. Join with the angels on high, sing with the saints in the choir. Christmas is all about the Father's love for us. Jesus is here, heaven has come. Set down for us. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Rejoice, rejoice,
Oh, 
Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Church in the Valley. Uh, my name is Jeremy Walker, and I wanted to let you guys know about some of the announcements and things coming up in church life over here in the next month and some things going on this morning as well. Uh, first of all, if you are um, a guest with us this morning, thanks so much for taking your Sunday after Thanksgiving and, and joining us. And we have a free gift for you over there on the guest resource table. There's a book called How Good is Good Enough? And you're welcome to grab a copy of that for free for you or a family member or a friend. And um, we think that would be a really helpful book. And so feel free to take a copy of that. Uh, also, from myself or Kelly or one of the people coming in, you should have received a program. And inside that program are a note outline um, of a message today, as well as a connection card. And all the stuff you can find online, too, if you'd prefer to do that digitally instead. Um, but that's a way for you to go take notes, and there should be a pin in that. And also on that connection card, if you wouldn't mind uh, filling that out this morning, uh, just everyone here this morning, just to be able to let us know that you are here, and then mark on the back um, any prayer requests or things that I'm about to give announcements on. If you have questions about or want to be able to help out with, feel free to be able to mark down your connection card as well. And then you can drop that in some of our recycling baskets that we have sitting around uh, the edges of the walls here and stuff like that, or over there at the guest resource table in the offering basket. You put that in there as well. And uh, if you are wanting to give in person this morning, you can also drop that in the offering basket over on the guest resource table, or you can give online as well. Um, a few other announcements we have coming up in uh, church life I want to let you know about is, one, the Operation Christmas Child that you guys all participated in and that we picked up all the boxes last week. I don't know if you guys know, but as a church, we did 111 boxes. So, I mean, that is, yeah, I mean, considering the amount of kids and the amount of uh, people here, that is a lot of boxes. And so um, that may seem like a number to you, but I mean, that is, if every one of you was a child, uh, that is more people that are here that are going to receive a Christmas gift and get to hear about um, the great story of, of Jesus and how he's the ultimate gift. And so this is going to be, you know, a great opportunity to see what God does in the lives of people all around the world. Um, another thing going on is the parent-child uh, dedication overview. That's going to be today at 11.15 right after service. It's going to be in the uh, little courtyard over here to my left under the orange tents, and Mark Kleftsip's going to be leading that. So if you have signed up for that, that's where you want to meet. And if you have a little kid and you haven't gotten to do uh, the child dedication overview before and you'd like to be able to uh, participate in that for the child dedication um, time on December 19th that we're going to be having, you're welcome to be able to participate in that. You don't need to have signed up. You can just go over there and be a part of that. And really what that is, uh, the child dedication time, if you're like, what does that even mean? Well, one, it means you give your child to the church, and we own, no, it doesn't mean that at all. Um, what it means is really what you're saying is I want to really um, commit uh, not only before God, but before this community that I really want to raise my, my son or my daughter to really to know and to walk with Jesus. And uh, not only am I making a commitment to do that, but I'm going to need everybody's help in order to be able to do that. And so um, we're, we're dedicating them that really, first and foremost, our children belong to God, and we're stewards of of his children, and we want to raise them to really walk with him. And so if you want to hear more about that from Mark, uh, feel free to be able to be a part of that after service today at 11.15 right over there. Um, and then our Christmas offering that we're going to be having coming up, I want to let you guys know this is kind of a first week we're announcing it, but every year, if you're, uh, if you're new with us and you don't know about this, every year we like to try to, above and beyond uh, the normal giving that we, give, we do with our church, which all you guys are great on, by the way, um, we want to be able to have some opportunities to bless other people and other ministries, uh, both locally and around the world through a special Christmas offering. And so this year, um, as we were thinking about kind of our goal, we decided we were going to set the goal 
for $20,000 um, as a church. And about 50% of that is going to go to local uh, ministries um, in, in and around uh, here and around the U.S. And then about 50% of that is going to go overseas to different ministries that are going to be blessed in there. We'll tell you more about that in the weeks to come. But on top of that, one of the things we want to be able to do that's going to be really exciting is uh, one of our sister churches, Church in the Valley, Ontario Ranch, which is really what this church was planted out of uh, years ago, they have now had a, an awesome opportunity where they're going to be having a building um, that they're going to be able to lease and to be able to kind of fix out and use um, week to week where they won't have to, for the past 30-something years, actually do setup every single morning. So this is a really exciting opportunity for them. However, opportunities always come disguised as work and money. And so this is one of those things. And so what they're going to be doing is they're going to need um, a, lot of, a lot of money and a lot of time and effort to be able to renovate a very helpful building, but a very poorly laid out building in terms of being able to do their Sunday morning services. And so one of the things we want to do above and beyond even the $20,000 that we're wanting to do for our Christmas offering is um, as a church, because you guys are such faithful, generous givers, we're, we're in a good financial place that we want to be able to bless them to be able to help them with that. So this is what we're going to do. Anything that comes in for the Christmas offering of that 20000 or over, we're going to match as a church to be able to give to them to help them, you know, outfit this place. So, like, if you guys reach the $20,000 goal, we're going to give also $20,000 to help them. If you guys put in $25,000, you know, we're going to match that too. And so, hey, you know, the challenge has been set. Now you guys can see how much you guys want to, you know, reach to that. And so that's going to be a really great way beyond our local and international ministries we're going to give to, just to be able to be a blessing to them um, long-term to be able to get that place laid out. So, And then next announcement, uh, Church Around the Table. We discussed this before, but that's going to be Sunday, December 12th. And uh, if any of you guys like to eat food, particularly breakfast food, this is a great opportunity for you. And if you don't like eating breakfast food, what's wrong with you? You know, I mean, that's it's like the best meal of the day. And so what we're going to do is uh, breakfast will be served, and uh, there's going to be some time for kids to be able to sing uh, some songs that they're learning in Kids Zone over the next couple of weeks, so that'll be fun too. But this would be a great opportunity for us to be able to just sit around, have some unhurried time as a church family to be able to enjoy each other, um, enjoy kind of a Christmas service, enjoy time together, and uh, and have a meal together. And so invite your friends and family to that. That's going to be a great opportunity. And if you want to be, you know, helping with that, or if you have questions about that or things like that, feel free to, again, mark that on your connection card as well. And then uh, two more announcements. Uh, we're almost there. One this is a big alliteration. Cocoa, coffee, and carols in the courtyard of CIV. Um, but that's going to be Sunday, the following week, December 19th. So if you bring friends and family to uh, the church around the table, uh, next week you can jo uh, bring them to church there. We'll have coffee, we'll have cocoa, and uh, we'll have carols. And that's going to be Sunday, December 19th at a regular time here. And that'll be a fun Christmas service as well for people to be able to... Uh, get ready for, you know, celebrating Christmas and again to celebrate the birth of Jesus. So I enjoy, invite you guys to, to come and be a part of that. And then our Christmas gift to you as a church, we're not going to have church on December 26th. So if you're thinking, I'm going to be out of town, I'm trying to rush back it down, don't worry, because we're not going to have service that day on Sunday, December 26th. So feel free to relax, have your own time at home with your family, and then we'll come back together uh, the following Sunday. So that's all announcements I have for you this morning. Uh, let me pray for us and then We'll continue to worship and welcome up John. So, Father, thank you so much for uh, this group of men and women, and just thanks for the way you've been knit their hearts together and the the generosity, both uh, 
in time, but also in money, the way you really have uh, put them together and put us together to be able to not only be a blessing to one another, but be a blessing to those uh, locally and other churches and all around the world. And I pray that we continue to steward your resources well in that. Um, pray you really be honored through not only the words of our mouths this morning, but the, really the meditations and, of our hearts. And uh, God, would you really speak very personally and very practically to each one of us this morning through John. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Jeremy. Would you stand with us as we continue to sing?
for this reason that we sing and that we have joy that you came down and gave us the gift of eternal life through your death thank you for reconciling ourselves to you we love you we ask these things in your name amen you guys can have a seat welcome john up Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> well, I hope you had a very happy Thanksgiving time and uh, certainly very grateful to the Lord for so, much, so many things. I'm grateful to be able to share with you and worshiping Jesus and looking at the Word of God. <clears throat> Today we're going to be talking about trusting the promises of God, trusting the promises of God. And we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 32, the book of Jeremiah th chapter 32, that's all of that chapter, verses 1 all the way to 44. We're in a series, as you're probably aware, that's kicked off from our study of Exodus 32 through 34. We looked at what the climax of that passage was where God reveals his character to Moses on Mount Sinai as a God of forgiveness and, and, and mercy and a God of justice. And that passage is picked up by so many other Old Testament books and used again and again, quoted or alluded to over and over again through the Old Testament. And this series is tracing some of those passages through the Old Testament and seeing what's going on and how do they then turn back to uh, what they've already known about God from what he spoke about himself and how does that affect the way they live. So this is another one and uh, now starting we might take a break from this series the next over December as we look at more Christmassy themes but uh, for now, we'll, we'll, for this morning, we'll get, on, we'll get into this. Just a word about context. I always tell you, whenever you look at a verse in the Bible or a passage, you want to know what came before it, what comes after it, how it kind of fits in its context in the Bible. And the two chapters before this one are known perhaps as the book of consolation. This is Jeremiah, a book with a lot of judgment in it and a lot of excoriation of Israel or, or Judah and 
their crimes against God and against one another. But chapters 30 and 31 are full of promise of restoration because all the way through Jeremiah, he's been saying to them, you're going to be exiled as a nation. Your cities, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Judah is going to be conquered and you're going to be exiled. And then we get to chapters 30, 30 and 31 and you're going to be restored. In chapter 31, uh, there's even a promise of a new covenant. And that new covenant is, of course, what Jesus comes to bring, to inaugurate, to initiate the, the new covenant where that which was externalized in the, in the law, the, the, the first covenant, is now going to be internalized. It's going to be written on your hearts. You're going to know God. You're going, the law is going to be written on your hearts. And, and that kind of brings us to chapter 32. And, except at the very end of chapter 31, it's not just a spiritual restoration that's being promised or a spiritual renewal, but an actual coming back to the, to the land and to the city of Jerusalem. And the last part of chapter 31 is about God's promising that after Jerusalem's being destroyed and after you've been exiled and you, after you come back, then the city is going to be rebuilt. But then we, we kick off our text here in verse 1, and he's going to be, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. That time the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. And that's the circumstances. Jeremiah is going to give, going to be speaking a word from the Lord, and this is the context of when he brings it in, if you like, the, the, uh, the situation that he's going to speak it into. Jeremiah is locked up. He's guarded. He is imprisoned. Uh, and that's because he's been pre preaching the word of the Lord. So this passage, this whole chapter today, is really about trusting the promises of God. The first 15 verses of our passage set up the situation as Jeremiah, we're going to discover what happens here, but Jeremiah is told by God to do something as a kind of prophetic act uh, which is going to look forward to the restoration of, of, of Judah and Israel from exile after their punishment. Chapter six, uh, verses 16 to 27 is where Jeremiah responds to his own prophecy by praying to God and saying, well, Lord, uh, I, don't, I don't quite get how that's going to all happen. And then verses 27 through to the end of the chapter, verse 44, is God responding then to Jeremiah's lament and his, his, his questioning of God by saying, yes, I am going to judge them, and I am, but also I definitely am going to restore, restore you. So it's all about this promise of, or promises of God. We've been talking in this series about trusting the character of God. And if you're going to trust the character of God, one of the things we have to learn to do is trust His word, that is, His loyalty, His commitment, His faithfulness to keep His 
promises. And in the, in the Christmas season, this is particularly relevant because, of course, the coming of Jesus, the incarnation of God as a man, the sending of the Messiah, all of this is the fulfillment of God's earlier promises to Israel. And in fact, after our chapter today, chapter 32 of Jeremiah, the very next chapter has one of those many promises of the coming of the Messiah. And that's another one to be fulfilled. And so we can sit and read the scripture here and say, look, God's promises to Israel were fulfilled. They were exiled. They were restored. And the Messiah did come. And then we've got to start thinking about what does that mean for us? What are the promises of God that we need to live by, to live under, to live with, how that's going to affect their life? But before we speak about all of that, we want to consider Jeremiah's situation and think about the first five verses, really, are really not about trusting the promises, but they're really about what I call suffering the promises. <laughs> He's really talking about suffering the promises. Yeah, sometimes the promises of God are delightful. And sometimes the promises of God are downright scary, right? Because he's promising things that you're not sure you want. And here he's promising destruction for the city that Jeremiah is in. And Jeremiah is even in more vulnerable situation from, than most. Not only is, is he one of the many Jews who are locked inside the city of Jerusalem where the Babylonian army is outside the walls, besieging them. He's also locked up himself under, under guard, under constraint. So he's really, he's, he's lost, in terms of humanly speaking, he's lost control of his life. He's no longer a free man. Not only is he not free in the city to roam about Jerusalem, he's locked up and under guard all the time, 24 hours a day. Even if he were to escape from, from being locked up there, he's locked up inside the city uh, with a huge army, a conquering army outside the walls. He has lost his, humanly, his freedom, humanly speaking, and yet God is speaking into this situation. That's the problem with speaking the truth, like Jeremiah, right? That's the trouble with speaking the truth. You get into trouble when you speak in truth. People don't like it. They lock you up. They throw the key away. That's what happens when you speak the truth of, of, of God. And verses 3 to 5 then kind of explain why he was locked up. Verse 3 to 5, and Jeremiah's, and this is where, it said, well, let's read it, verses 3 to 5. Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why are you prophesying and saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye, 
and he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Now that's the prophecy that Jeremiah had previously given that Zedekiah puts him in prison for. It's basically saying, you're going to lose this war, King Zedekiah. You're going to lose this war. You're going to be exiled uh, out of your own country and taken to to uh, Babylon, and no matter how hard you fight against the Chaldeans, you're going to lose. Now that is not a very cheerful prophecy when your nation is under attack. And in fact, in Jeremiah, we see this kind of battle of prophets going on. If we looked earlier in the book, we're going to see situations where false prophets come along. They want to be good news prophets and say, it's going to be good. It's all going to be good. No worries, we got this. God's, God's going to set us free, right? He, we're not going to actually have to lay down in defeat to the Babylonians. The Babylonians were the evil empire of their day, right? They were the, the huge superpower of their day, and they had been marauding west from Babylon, which is in current day, where current day Iraq is. And they're coming west, conquering everything that they can see, and Jeremiah is saying, you're going to lose. Just surrender to the Babylonians. That's not a real encouraging word, and that's why they put him in prison. It's politically dangerous, right? That's going to demoralize the troops. It's going to demoralize the people. We can't have bad news prophets. We only want people saying cheerful, happy things. Put him in prison. The trouble with speaking the truth is that your motives are questioned, right? Zedekiah is saying, why are you prophesying this? Now the answer, of course, unstated here in our text, the answer is because that's what God says. That's what God's going to do. That's why he's prophesying it. When God speaks, we have to pass on his word, whatever it is, whether for good or ill. Now, so Jeremiah's suffering, promises you might say, but let's move now to verses 6 to 15, which have to do with investing in the promises. Investing in the promises. Let's read verses 6 to 8, recognizing the word of the Lord. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Now, this is the word that he promised in verse 1 that he was going to speak, and so now he's going to say it. The word of the Lord came to me, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come and say to you, Buy my field, that is Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of God in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field, that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord." All right, so Jeremiah has got family, and he's got a cousin named Hanamel. Uh, this is his father's brother, his first cousin, and Hanamel comes to Jeremiah, says, buy my field. There's a system in the law of Israel, uh, it's kind of a system of family redemption of land. The idea is to keep land in the family 
when there's financial trouble, it had two levels. At one level, if you were in financial straits and you had to sell your property, the first refusal on selling that property went to your own, someone in your closest relative, your own family, had the right to purchase that from you. That would get you out of debt, but keep the land in the family. Uh, the second level of, of defense, if you like, of family land came every 50 years at the year of Jubilee when all lands went back to the family that originally owned it. And so that was given it in the, in the distribution after Israel came into the promised land. So that's the kind of legal situation. And so we presume that Hanamel is in trouble financially. Not surprising if the Babylonians are, are rampaging through the land and, uh, you know, and a lot of refugees have come into Jerusalem hiding behind the walls there, keeping out of trouble. They're going to get into debt. They, they don't, their income is gone, right? And so what are they going to do? And, and, uh, and so this is what happens. And the Lord spoke to Jeremiah saying, Hanamel's going to come and ask you to buy his land. He's your cousin. And then what, guess what? Hanamel turns up and asks him to buy his land. This is a piece of property at Anathoth, which is sort of uh, in, in this countryside of Benjamin, which is kind of a bit north uh, uh, of where Jerusalem is. And you'll notice then he says, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, right? Uh, confirmation's always good, isn't it? Uh, by the way, when God gives you, speaks to you something that involves someone else's will and not just your own, they also need to sign on before it really happens, all right? This is what happens here, right? Uh, for Hanumel, and now Jeremiah had this transaction which they're going to, we're going to look at in a moment. But, uh, you know, sometimes I've heard people say to me, yeah, you know, God spoke to me about that girl or that man, you know, I'm going to marry them. And I can tell them, well, I always tell them, look, that's great, praise the Lord, but as long as he's got to speak to them as well. So we're just, just that's something to be aware of, right? Because there's two people involved. And here, there's both Jeremiah and Hanamel involved, and they both have to come to agreement. So that's why Jeremiah says at the end, then I knew this was the word of the Lord. It was confirmation of what had happened. Verses 9 to 12 then, there's a price of obedience to the Lord or to the word of the Lord because Jeremiah assumes that this word from the Lord is not just he's going to ask you to redeem your property. That means I need to redeem his property, which means he has to put out some money. Or, although it's, it's not certain that, uh, that any actual coins were being manufactured in Israel this time, so they had to use literal silver that they weighed out. Verses 9 to 12, I bought the, she the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. And I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Maseah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. Okay, that's, that's what happens. And so 
he, he spends 17 shekels of, of silver on this property, which is actually quite expensive. Uh, you know, it's not, Jeremiah, is, there's not as much as some rich people. He's not super rich, but he spends a fair chunk of change, more than change, on this property, a family farm, presumably, on the field that's at Anathoth. And you'll notice uh, it's very legally enacted, right? He's buying this, he gets the deed of purchase, uh, and it says there's a sealed copy and an open copy. And what they used to do is that they would have a, a scroll uh, uh, and, uh, of parchment, and they would write two copies of the contract on, on, the, on the roll, and then they would roll it up, the first co- but they'd keep, them, they'd keep them connected to each other, these two copies. One was open, one was sealed. So they'd roll up the first one and seal it over with the people's seals to show that that, would been, to show that, that had been sealed and signed and delivered, and that was certain the transaction had taken place. And then the other copy, they kept rolling it. The other just kind of wrapped around there without a seal. And that was the one that was the open copy. You could actually take it out and look at it uh, if just to check the details or, and so on. But because it had been signed along the way and it was all on one piece of parchment, it was a way of guaranteeing uh, not only that you could check the details of the contract, but uh, so that uh, it was uh, they kept, kept the two copies the same. So that's, that's how this worked. Uh, Jeremiah is being asked by God to invest money in a piece of property that he can't use, right? Because the the Babylonians are at the gates. The evil empire is mounting siege walls and ramps up up to the walls of Jerusalem trying to break down the walls. And he's being asked to buy a piece of property that he can't benefit from. He can't earn the income from that property. He can't go farm it. He can't get a tenant farmer because he can't even get outside of the city. He's in locked up inside the city. He's been asked to do something with a very, uh, with a very uh, long viewpoint. And so... Uh, Let's read verses 13 to 15. Prepare to, prepare to wait. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. Right? That's how the Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way, were discovered after a couple of thousand years, still able to be read because they were se- rolled and sealed in a clay jar and, and, put it, and, and, and kept aside. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. This was a prophetic act. I'm going to buy a piece of property that I can't use because it's a prophetic symbol that many years down the line, people will be buying and selling land in this and using it. Wow, but he had to be prepared to wait. You know how long Jeremiah had earlier prophesied that, that they would be under the Babylonians, that they would be exiled. Seventy years, he's prophesied. This, so Jeremiah is investing in God's promises, but it's not an investment with a huge financial payoff, right? 
This is not giving to the church $10 this week and hoping that $20 will come your way next week. This is investing in a piece of land that he's never going to be able to use. But it's a prophetic sign that people will once again, Jews will once again inhabit the land under God's blessing. In other words, you've you've got to put your money where God's mouth is, right? Put your money where his mouth is. Put your, invest your future in God's future. Invest your future in God's future, even when it's costly. You know, when I was first converted and I was called to ministry, the Lord spoke to me and I wanted to just get, get right, go leave college, go right into ministry then, just forget college. God's calling me. I'm on my way. And uh, my parents dissuaded me. I thanked them for that because <clears throat> after, you know, looking back, I needed that degree. I didn't know that at the time. But my Christian friend said, when I said, well, maybe I could go to seminary or the Australian equivalent of seminary. And uh, because, you know, they said, oh, no, don't waste your time. Jesus is coming back soon. Why do you spend all those years in training? Jesus is coming back. You'll, waste, you'll, be, you'll still be training when and Jesus returns. You've done nothing. Don't do that. Just get on, get on with your ministry. Well, I think you've, you've worked it out by now. Jesus did not come back in the early 1980s. And so, uh, and thank God for that, uh, for your sake, right? I mean, I'm thankful that Jesus didn't come back, you know, the week before I met him, right? Uh, and so he doesn't, you know, he's delayed his coming out of patience. Years later, many years later, about 20 years after I was converted, I finally went to seminary and then on to doctorate studies and I did eight years of full-time training uh, in order to, do the, to, to prepare for the next stage of my life in ministry. And that eight years seemed like an awfully long time. It was eight years in the middle of my life with a wife and four children, and it was a huge time investment of, on part of my wife, myself, and the family, and it was tough. But... That was an investment in the future that God had called us to. And, you know, we have to be prepared to invest in the promises of God and prepare to wait. Everything that the Lord has ever spoken to me about, you know, you wanted you to do this, John, I've always had to wait for it. I mean, mostly for years and years and years. You know, I had this, like when I was a young missionary, I had this vision of, vision, that's a, didn't have a literal vision, but I had this, things I felt from the Lord. It was going to be a kind of a traveling ministry around England uh, with the, the team members you know, of, of the mission we're in and work with churches and sort of itinerating on a mobile ministry around the country. And every year I would go to my leadership in the mission and say, you know, can I start that? And they say, no, you're not ready. And every next year, can I do it? No, you're not ready. It just went several years before they finally said, yes, it's okay, you can do it now. Uh, you have to wait sometimes, right? He has to take this seal and this perch and this deed and, and put them in a, a clay jar and they can last for a long time. It's going to be over 70 years before houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Or near, and it wasn't even going to be Jeremiah 
he's going to do it. You know, in Psalm 105, verse 17 to 19, Psalm 105, 17 to 19, uh, it talks about Joseph. And it says, God says, or, or the psalm says, I should say, he sent a man ahead of them, that's Joseph's family, Jacob and his brothers. Uh, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of, li- of iron. This is Joseph, the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. He is sold by, as a, by his brothers as a slave into Egypt. And that's how Israel ended up in Egypt for 400 years, as the family eventually followed him along. And so Joseph had these promises from the Lord that he would be ruling over his parents and his brothers. And, but in the meantime, he's in, literally in a dungeon with his neck in a collar of iron and his feet in chains as a slave and, uh, and, and as a prisoner. And, and verse 19 of Psalm 105 says this, until what he said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Until what he said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. You know, the word of the Lord tests us. And it tests us through having to wait. The promises of God not only give us huge hope, they also give us a test because we have to hang on have to wait, have to, to st- stay in there and hang in there. How many of you know that God's timing is different from ours? Do you know that? Usually slower. God's timing is different from ours, usually slower. He's seldom early, but never late. Seldom early, but never late. His timing is different from ours. Let's read verses 16 to, or we're going to look at verses 16 to 26 now. And this is where, uh, having done this prophetic act, now Jeremiah starts to ponder what he's just done and starts to maybe doubt just a little what he's just done. Nothing, but nothing is too hard for the Lord. This is a kind of questioning prayer, although it doesn't read like it. Verses 16 to 17 then, we're uh, declaring the nature and the character of God. Uh, 16 to, and, uh, well, 16 to 19, I should say, declaring the nature and character of God. And in verse 16 to 17, particularly declaring his great power. After I'd given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, by the way, Baruch, the son of Neriah, who's who's Jeremiah's scribe and secretary, he's discovered, archaeologists have discovered a seal, a stone seal, or uh, with his name on it in Jerusalem. I mean, it's not just in the Bible, he's there also in the ground with his name on it, with his name, his father's name, and his grandfather's name, all according to how it is in the scripture. I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah. I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. That sounds like a pretty positive prayer, doesn't it? Nothing's too hard for you. 
Creator God, you made the heavens and the earth. This is talking about creation's power. But the first word of this prayer in Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, is ah. Well, actually in Hebrew, it's aha. <laughs> and what it means in Hebrew is not aha, as we might do in English, right? It means, oh no. It means, alas. It means, oh. That's how he starts this prayer. Oh God. Now he calls the Lord, Lord God, uh, in the Hebrew here, uh, normally I say to you, if you see the Lord in, all, Lord in all capitals in the Old Testament, this is Yahweh. Here you've got Lord, uh, capital L, lowercase Lord, and then you've got God, all capitals. This is the way that tr the translators try to translate what's underneath in the Hebrew. In this case, it's actually Adonai Yahweh, Lord Yahweh, really. Sovereign Lord, some translations do this, but it's emphasizing his lordship. Uh, Lord, Yahweh, it is you who've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. He's saying the right things. And it's so true. If we're going to trust the character of God, we need to learn trust his promises. If we're going to trust his promises, we've got to learn to trust his nature and character. And in this first part of the prayer, he declares God's great power. What, how, how great is that power to bring about his promises? It's the power of creation itself, the power which created the heavens and the earth. That's the power that's behind God's promises. Praise the Lord. In the next two verses, right, he declares God's consistent character, verses 18 and 19. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel, mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. That's verses 18 and 19. Think about this. This is where our connection to Exodus 34 comes in. In verse 18, you show steadfast love to thousands, but repay the guilt of their fathers to their children after them. We go back to Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, the second commandment, not making idols. It says, you shall not worship or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the th third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Come forward to Exodus 34, 6 and 7, especially verse 7, God's revelation to Israel that he keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So that's a little allusion to here to those two passages here in verse 18. God's nature, his power, and his character. Will God's promises stand? How do you know God's promises will stand? Number one, he's able to do it, right? His power, his creative, awesome power that is able to do anything that he says that nothing is too hard for him. And his consistent 
character that he's a God of mercy and justice, of mercy and justice, and therefore his promises will be fulfilled. And so he's declaring, here he's declaring in his prayer, God's power and character, his nature, his being, his identity, his character. And as he goes on in the prayer to verse 20 to 23, he keeps talking about the Lord. And now he starts telling stories about what God has done. If you're wanting to learn to trust in the power, in the promises of God, you have to learn not only about his nature and his character, his power and his commitment, if you like, but you need to start telling stories. And we need to tell the stories of redemption. This is what he does. Verse 20 to 23. You've shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel among all mankind that have made a name for yourself as, as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it. How can Israel trust that they will be able to come back to the land after they'll be, they're going to be exiled? And the answer is, they were brought there once before from slavery in Egypt. God's already done that before. They can look back to it. Tell the stories of redemption. The stories. You know, in the year 17, in the late 1700s, let's just say like that, in the late 1700s, what we might call evangelical Christianity was largely confined to a little bit of America, uh, to sort of North America, particularly Northeast America, uh, Western Europe, not, and Northern Europe, and that's pretty much it around the world. A few little outposts here and there until what we call the modern missions movement really began, 1792, when William Carey, an English Baptist pastor who went to India and kicked off a whole movement of modern missions that has changed the world. So now there's far more Christians in non-Western nations than there ever were in the Western nations. And that's where the world center of Christianity is now, out there, not here. God's still here, praise the Lord. But that's what happened. That's an incredible story. You know, in earlier in the... In the, in the even in the late or in the sort of 1980s, 1970s, in the country of Albania, they had banned Christianity to the extent that uh, they you know, closed all the churches just, and uh, they, any remaining priests or church leaders that they found, the communists found there, they literally sealed them in barrels and rolled them into the sea. They declared themselves the, the world's first true atheist nation. Within about 15 years of that, that nation had, you know, had totally transformed and, and the gospel was allowed in. And, you know, for the first time for, for decades. Think of what God has done around the world. Think of what's happened in China. Somewhere now, tens and tens of millions, maybe 50, maybe 100 million Christians now in China. Astonishingly what God has done. If you're going to learn to trust in the promises of God, you just tell the stories of redemption, the biblical stories and the mission stories and every other story you can find. 
and verse 21 to 24, you still need to tell the stories of judgment or declare them as well. Verse 21 to 24, they did not obey your voice or work, walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded but them to do. Therefore, you've made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given to the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass and behold, you see it. You know, we have to actually have to trust God's promises of judgment as much as his promises of mercy. And that's actually really important, right? Because God has been promising, I'm going to dis destroy, the, you know, the Babylonians are going to destroy Jerusalem and you're going to be exiled. And, and they have to believe that promise. They have to believe that promise. It's going to happen. And even when Jeremiah was tempted to pray for Israel, in, in the book of Jeremiah, several times he's, he's going to pray for them, intercede, and God tells them, no, don't pray. <laughs> this prayer won't be answered. Don't pray that one. That promise was going to be fulfilled. But in verse 25, Jeremiah then really puts to the Lord the honest question that he has. The, uh, he says, but, but you, O Lord God, right? Adonai Yahweh. You have said to me, buy the field and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Jeremiah, even though he's prophesied this, even though he's just prophesied the new covenant in chapter 30 and 31, even though he has promised restoration himself in prophecy, he had to put his own money down and buy this field, and he did it. He obeyed the Lord. And then he says, oh, Lord, what, what's up? How come you're telling me to do this? He can't, even Jeremiah is struggling with the thought that Israel could be restored when he sees the massive destruction that's going to go on, when he foresees the destruction that's going to go on. And in Back in verse 17, Jeremiah started this prayer by saying, Lord, nothing's too hard for you. Nothing's too hard for you. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer, of course, rhetorically is no, there's nothing too hard for him. But even Jeremiah, even though he starts this prayer like that, he can't quite grasp it. In verse 26 and 27 then, verse 26 and 27, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after his prayer, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Basically, God is quoting Jeremiah back to himself, saying, Remember what you prayed. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. you just got to know that, accept it, believe it. If God can create the world, and the, and the universe, if he can rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt, if he can do all these things we, we know and see in, in, in Israel's history and ours and in church history, listen, remember that nothing, nothing is too hard for him. Jeremiah had to listen to his own prayer coming from the mouth of God and remember that nothing's too hard for the Lord. Now, verses 8, 28 to 35, 
We'll call this Embrace the Justice of God. God is now going to speak to Jeremiah. Jerry has been speaking to God. Now God's going to speak to Jerry. He's going to to speak to him. He's going to say, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. This is 28 and 29, right? The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose roofs offering have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. Right? God is still in the judgment business. He is telling Jeremiah, this promise is true. The promise that you've been prophesying on my, in my name is, is going to happen. It will be It will come to pass, and this is important, to embrace this, to believe the promise of of judgment. One of my early teachers in missions would say to us, in order to, to receive God's mercy, you first have to embrace his justice. To receive God's mercy, you have to embrace his justice. What does this mean? It means that to be a recipient of God's mercy, to know his forgiveness and his love and and his redemption, you have to recognize that you deserve judgment. For Israel to be the recipient of God's promised restoration, they have to accept that they're going to be judged by God. And, uh, And yet that judgment is not permanent because God is going to redeem them from Babylon, just like he redeemed them from Egypt in the past. You know, earlier in the book, in chapter 29, where Jeremiah promises that they're going to be, uh, you know, exiled to Babylon, he tells them, build ho- when you get there, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, Take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, this is also a case of investing in the promises of God, but it's investing in the promises of judgment. They were going to be exiled. He's saying when you get there, it's going to be a long time. Put some money down buy a house, buy a farm, get married, have children, let you, you know, have, have grandchildren. You're going to be there a while. God's still in the, in the judgment business today. You know that, right? He's still in the judgment business. And we need to recognize that and to recognize the justice of judgment. Let's look at verse 30 to 35, starting with Verse 30 to 32, recognizing the justice of judgment. No one is excused. Sin, because sin is constant, continual, universal. Verse 30 to 32. The children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's everybody, right? They've been doing it's all of them constantly, 
and continually have been doing their own thing. They've been disobeying. They have not listened. They've refused to listen. Verse 33, they've turned to me their back and not their face. And although I've taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. In fact, they've committed unimaginable idolatry and evil. Look at what verse 34 and 35. They set up their abominations in the house that's called by my name to defile it, you know, bringing idols into the temple of God. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch. Just outside Jerusalem, they literally were sacrificing children uh, to this false god Moloch. Although I did not command them, nor did it even enter my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Unim that's what really is unimaginable evil, where God says, didn't enter my mind that you should do this. That's amazing. They need... They, they have to be judged, and it's going to happen. But in verse 36 to 34, God keeps, keeps speaking. We need to hold on to the promises of restoration. Look beyond the immediate circumstance, right? Verse th 16, Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it's given in the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Right? Thus says the Lord, look beyond the immediate circumstance. Jerry, look beyond the circumstance. Look beyond the immediate, right? I was, I was, one of my heroes in the faith is William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, the British parliamentarian who was, was a kind of leader of the anti-slavery movement in, the, in 18th century England. And he got converted to the Lord as an adult and he went into Parliament and he, he first spoke to Parliament, which is the equivalent of Congress. He, he spoke to Parliament in 1788, 1789. Oh, well, he finally got heard. He joined, we got into Parliament. 1789, he first introduced a legislation against the slave trade. It was, 20, it was 18 years later before the slave trade was banned. Then he starts, then he starts legislating action and start agitating against slavery altogether and it was 1833 when slavery was banned in England and in most of the British Empire 1833 and uh, you know that's basically over 40 years he, he uh, Wilberforce heard he was a dying elderly man and he heard uh, you know that the uh, the government had moved to pass that bill. They hadn't quite got it through Parliament yet, but it was going to happen. He heard about this the day before he died, that his final victory against slavery had happened. And it was a, a battle of nearly 50 years of his life to, just, to get rid of slavery. An incredible man of God, evangelical believer, loved, loved Jesus. He looked beyond the immediate circumstance and he just kept going. Verse 37 to 41, pay attention to the promises of restoration. Verse 37 is a promise of return, right? Behold, I will gather them from the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I'll make them dwell in safety. Verse 38 to 41 is a promise of covenant transformation. 
They shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that, they, that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I'll put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. It's going to be in the heart, not just in the law. And verse 41, a promise of good. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. And then finally, verse 42 to 44, the, pro the certainty of restoration and renewal. Thus says the Lord, just as I brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying it's a desolation without man or beast. It's given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. And in 1515, this was five, so 586 is when Jerusalem was destroyed. 515, 70 years later, basically, the temple was rebuilt, 70 years. Trust the promises of God. As I said, in chapter 33, it's a, it's a promise of the Messiah to come. And guess what? We're going to be celebrating in a few weeks the, the coming of the Messiah. The promises, we have promises too to look forward to. Jesus has promised to return, amen? He's promised to return, and it will be a time of judgment. It's going to happen. The judgment is coming, but it's also a time of resurrection, of new life, of hope, of new creation, right? A time of resurrection. Trust the promises of God. Your future belongs to Him. And I want to challenge you today to finish this, in finishing this, this little talk, is just to say this. If God is trustworthy, his, his promises are trustworthy, and you can depend upon it, invest your life in it. Invest your life in the certainty of Jesus' return as judge and redeemer and, and, the, coming of the, and the coming resurrection, in the certainty that the word of God is going to go to every nation in the world and bring good news there in the certainty of God's promises. Invest your life in the certainty of the truthfulness of God's word. Amen. All right. Amen. Thank you, John. Uh, would you stand with us as we continue to sing, continue to worship? Uh, we're singing a song called God That Saves, and um, as we sing this song, we know that our God is a God who saves. His salvation is declared as promised. Um, and so I'd encourage you as you guys either fill out your connection cards or sing the song or just think and pray that uh, this is our God. He is faithful. 
He promises to do what he says he will do, and he will do what he says that he does.
Thank you that your promises are true. You've never let us down. You've never failed us. And your word has never, ever been shown to be wrong. So help us to trust in your promises. Help us to trust in every word that comes from your mouth, Lord. Help us to understand, to see what you have to say through others and through your word. That we may know what your will is and may walk in it. We love you. We thank you. We ask these things in your name. David's throne and his 